Hello, I'm Ellie Harris. And I'm Mark Boucher. And welcome to Poking Books. A podcast where I introduce a mystery author who will explain their book through three books which influence that book. And somehow I have to guess what their book is about. And Ellie will know absolutely nothing about the author or their book until they sit down to record with us. Their name, what kind of book they've written, I will know nothing until they enter the studio. So Ellie, welcome back. It's been a long time. It's been a really long time, Mark. Eons. Eons, yes. The, the world has changed, but we're back for another episode of Poking Books. And um, Should we explain the, the idea of our mystery author podcast to people who are quite new to it? Let's do that. It's been a while, so it's good for both of us to refresh as well. Um, so you bring in a waif and stray. No, you bring in a, a new author and I have to guess what the book they've written is about based on three random facts. And then they tell me uh, about three books that have influenced their writing. And after each of those books, I have to guess what their book is about. So I don't have very much to go on, but it's a fun guessing game with our authors having to do a bit of poker face. And I think Stacey was a very good, um, was very good at the poker face. We've actually been saving this one uh, for the release of Stacey's book. Um, mm. So there has been quite a gap. We recorded this almost two years ago to the day, pre-pandemic. So it's, it's, it's very strange, but I'm very glad we've held on to it to now. But mm. I, I, I was really glad that re-listening to it, it was more friendly than I remembered. I thought exactly the same thing. Um, I remember it being quite a tense environment at points, not in an unfriendly way, but, um, you know, the, the subject matter that we end up talking about is, is, is quite serious and very important and poignant and listening back it's actually yeah there's there's a lot of fun in that podcast and a lot of learning this is one of our yeah. our longer podcasts that we did because there was just so much to talk about yeah the reason it's long I've not even taken out a lot of um pauses for those moments which I, I still remember that the sort of awkward moments and it's really nice listening back it wasn't as awkward yeah, it was a really interesting atmosphere. It, was, it, was, it wasn't like any of the other podcasts we've done. It was kind of changing my perceptions mm. and making me rethink a lot of stuff or not even rethink, like think for the first time about things that I'd not yeah. thought about. I think listening back to it, my feeling was that every time I found myself rabbiting off, I was like, no, shut up and listen. That this is what, <laughs> this is exactly why space <laughs> is here. And yeah, so maybe we should do that. We should shut up and have a listen. I think that's episode. a great idea. Okay. <laughs> Let's go and meet Stacey. So, um, Ellie, this is Stacey. Hi, Stacey. Hi, Ellie. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And Hi. just do a little bit of sound testing. Okay. Ellie, could you tell me what you have for breakfast this morning? I had a croissant from M&S. How boring. Um, it could you? Boring. It was lovely and it was buttery and delicious. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. And just tell me what you have for breakfast. Uh, I had a fry-up at a local calf. That is a good answer. What's your favourite item on a fry-up? Uh, hash browns. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Hash browns with a nice bit of baked beans piled on top. That's nice. And some egg. I like solid. It. Solid breakfast. Yeah, it's very solid breakfast. Well, it wasn't technically breakfast, it was actually lunch. I sort of skipped breakfast. I had breakfast for lunch. Sometimes you've just got to streamline the day. Yeah. We don't have to include the breakfast banter. Well, Why we not? shall see. <laughs> Fine, the <laughs> breakfast banter's in. Yeah. It says a lot about a person. Does there anybody, is there anybody out there who doesn't like hash browns? Please get in touch with us. But probably everyone eats breakfast. You know, it's very kind of, it's quite current affairsy. Yeah. Uh, everyone can relate. <laughs> quite <laughs> <Exactly>. current affairsy. <laughs> yeah. 
hot yeah. topic. Yeah. Breakfast is on the move. Is on the news every day. I was on, on the, the breakfast news, news because <laughs> they have. To... <laughs> <laughs> I've actually done that. I've been on breakfast TV. Oh, yeah. Ooh. surprise fact! Extra so one. yeah, surprise extra fact. Um, extra let's fact. go for let's go for the other three facts. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, Stacey, I believe you've collected some wonderful facts for us. Would you like to tell us what they yeah, are? Yeah, you asked me to provide three random facts about myself. So I put no thought into it at all. <laughs> I just came up with number one. I love gardening. Uh, number two, I am a chronic pain sufferer. And number three, I am a secret musician. So there we go, Ellie. Three facts, four, because you had a bonus one, yeah. that could go in many, many different directions. <laughs> um, would it give anything away if we talked more detail about the chronic pain? No, not necessarily. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? So I have, uh, well, um, would you give it away? Well, let's just say I have done a lot of physical labour in my um, work life and it has taken its toll on my body. And um, around about when I was 20, mid-20s, I started experiencing sort of uh, pain in my lower back, which extended into my leg. And I've been, I've obviously had it all checked out and I've had MRI scans and I've been diagnosed with degenerative disc disease of my lower vertebrae. Sounds like a sexy disease. Oh, well, sure is. And then I've also got something called foraminal stenosis which is also sexy. It's where the narrowing of the facet joints, which are your um, vertebrae, the little joints where they sort of flex, basically. Um, the canal is, the, 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 the nerve canal is where like you have a lot of nerves kind of exiting your spine and they sort of run down your legs and stuff. So it's quite a kind of, they're like the sort of highways of your f- sensation, if you like. And... Um, on the left side, I've got the, so one of those na- canals is narrowed. So it's basically a trap nerve. It's okay. what's also known as a pinched nerve. Um, and also a bit of mild sacroiliitis. Ooh. So my sacroiliac joint I is... I know about that. I've damaged mine before. Have very you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sacroiliac, the sacroiliac joint is a very, very integral yeah. joint, especially I'm very tall, which obviously listeners can't see that, but I'm six foot one yeah. without any shoes on. And um, so my sacroiliac joints tend to take a lot of lever, it's long levers and take a lot of stress. So I just, yeah, basically started presenting with these pains and um, they never really went away. So I've done all sorts of things like um, change my diet and cut down on inflammatory food, um, learned a lot about inflammation in the process, learned a lot about digestion, learned a lot about health and... I'd argue I'm probably healthier than a lot of my peers because of that. I've actually kind of got cut out a lot of, you know, I don't barely drink anymore, stop smoking. Um, So while I am in chronic pain, I often get people shocked at how I don't look my age. I look young. Well, I don't know. So that is one fact about me. Music, pain, gardening. Oh, you want me to guess now, don't you? That's, the, that's what happens Stacey next, Ellie. About... 
compulsory facts. Mm-hmm. Joy. Um, um, you can start start at the beginning, sort of fiction, non-fiction. I'm going to start with a non-fiction book about the benefits of wild swimming around the UK uh, for back pain. Right. There we go. Which probably has, like, if they adapt it for TV, would have an amazing soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> They've got everything together. Something quite epic with, like, a shot of the trees, some fir trees at the beginning. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah, so you are correct in that it's non-fiction, Ooh. but um, I am not a wild swimmer. <laughs> Funny you should say that. One of my best friends is a wild swimmer, and she's always going up to the ladies' pond in, um, what's it, uh, where's the ladies' pond? Uh, is that Hampstead Heath? Yeah, 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 yeah. I went to um, Beckton, is that the right place? No, Brockwell, mm-hmm. Brockwell Lido. Oh yeah? The other day, it was, mm. yeah, it was yeah, 8 degrees did. Celsius, and I got up with a hangover on a Saturday morning and got the bus there. Bus and hangover. No. Yeah. Um, but it was lovely. I was only in there for a matter of a few minutes, but it was... Um, yeah. Got cool. got all the stuff going. I've, I've, I have been also like ex- experimenting with cold showers, benefits of... Um, well, yeah. apparently it's good for inflammation. Yeah, so it's also another kind of tip for chronic pain sufferers out there. Do a bit of cold showers. What's his name? The Iceman. Um, Iceman. Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, I know David Blames did in Ice, but this is not who you're talking about. No, it's this. there's this guy. Um, oh, that's annoying. You can't come up and forget someone's name on a podcast when you're being recorded. You can edit it. It's yeah. Yes, it's all right. Just say, like, you know, so-and-so, and then later yeah. in the podcast when you remember it, you <laughs> yeah. can say it yeah. and I'll move it. Sure, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. So he's he's always he's always going on about the benefits of um cold showers. He is so good. Yeah. Love his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wim Hof. I've <laughs> never even heard of Wim Hof. He's no, no. Wim Wim Hof. Check him out. Yeah. He's crazy. He has okay. an amazing name. Okay. We should move on to um first books. I was going to say you don't have to tell Ellie if she's right about anything. Right. I was going to keep it we tend to keep it a bit uh, poker, but then we have you also. Like to, but I really enjoy it when I get talks and I know when yeah. I'm gonna get well, it right or not. Okay, well, because yeah, I once, um, I once said to an author, "Oh, careful! You're giving too much away." And she said, "I'll do what I want." And then <laughs> <laughs> said, like, I think we should give her a fighting chance. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. do what you want. Okay. Um, Stacy, do you want to tell us about your first book? Then, remind me of the title. Uh, Revolting prostitutes. Ah, so yeah, the first book on my list is titled Revolting Prostitutes and it's written by Juno Mack and Molly Smith. And I have not read it all yet. I've only begun it because um, it was not long been out. I think it was published in, oh, late 2018, maybe early 2019, um, Verso Books. And it is a work of staggering genius I think um it's a book written by two sex workers um it is thick with information it is very very dense and it's a book about the sex worker rights movement so um it's about uh laws and policies around the world which uh basically are failing sex workers. Um, How laws such as Foster Sester over in the US, which 
stands for Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act are actually having the opposite effect um, by actually driving sex workers further underground, by removing their rights um, or by removing their abilities, their, their methods to stay safe, for example, online advertising. Um, it's how laws don't serve the people that they are kind of claiming to protect. And there's a brilliant chapter in there about trafficking, about um, kind of, it's called borders. And it talks about the problems of how immigration laws themselves, in fact, create people with kind of ir irregular status and who are actually more vulnerable to exploitation because of immigration laws. And so it's kind of a, it's a, it's a huge critique. It's a very damning um, critique of, uh, yeah, basically kind of sex work laws, which are not sort of fit for purpose and how um, you know, sex workers haven't had enough of a voice, haven't been um, kind of consulted, who've been kind of sort of placed in the role of victim yeah. sort of historically and yeah it's just an all-round amazing book and the fact that it's actually written by two working yeah, yeah. women who have the lived experience and it's not kind of coming from like an academic point of view although it's a very heavy heavily academic book but it's not you know kind of academics yeah. sort of looking in it's people on the inside shouting out going hey guys listen to us we know what we're talking about that's the first book. Wow. Great. It's quite far from my wild swimming guess of the <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So Ellie. Um would you want to have a guess? Um you can stick with your wild swimming guess. Well I'm going to stick with non fiction. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um book well, because uh, Stacey said it was non fiction. Yeah, that might be it. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna say it's an erotic memoir of Oh, an erotic memoir of uh, a woman who has travelled via human trafficking. Travelled is the wrong word. I think one of the clear problems about the rhetoric around trafficking is it mm. removes the idea that anyone has any element of choice or agency at mm. all. So, in fact, you look at most cases yeah. of trafficking, it begins with smuggling it begins with people having any kind of agency yeah, yeah. and desire to be somewhere else yeah. so they want to be in a new place yeah, yeah. and so but because conditions don't allow for that sort of ease of ease of uh, tra travel yeah. that they will end up kind of getting embroiled in things like trap smuggling taking on debts mm -hmm. uh, become basically being exploited yeah. but it's not as simple as just being bundled in the back of a van and being kidnapped you know that's that's a very obviously very serious crime and it's an abuse and I'm not saying the exploitation isn't abusive as well but it's important to recognize that even people who have been trafficked yeah. have had any kind of agency and have any kind of desire to be in the place they want to be even if it's shit you know, even if they are in terrible conditions being exploited, they that that is preferable to the alternative, which yeah. could be worse. So it's that's a really, I, you know, that's a kind of um, I, again, that's why I recommend reading that book. It's just yeah. a, it's important to I think perceive that 
people in the sex industry have like a kind of wider identity beyond this kind of label or this kind of objective it's a form of objectification that happens all the time and it's not just sexual you can objectify someone as a victim as easily as you can objectify them as a sex object so yeah sorry to interject there no 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 but yeah but i think are you sticking with um a real life memoir stacy you think yeah yeah why not okay no further comments. Um, it's too yeah. hard at this point. Yeah. Okay. Well, shall we move on to our second book then? The Ethical Slut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By yeah. Dossie Easton and Janet Hardy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Ethical Slut. So, a guide to infinite sexual possibilities. Mm-hmm. I first heard about that book when I was partying in Berlin many years ago and one of my uber cool, uber sexy, kind of, you know, non-binary um, artist friends was telling me about this book, The Ethical Slut. And you hear those two words in that order and you think, what? Mm-hmm. Like, it's sort of... um it jams it's like one of those culture jams it jams the uh narrative of well what's a slut you know a slut is a a pejorative term it's a it's a it's an insult it's it's long been used to sort of degrade particularly women right so slut shaming has been a long thing um and books like the ethical slut i think and many others of that ilk have done a lot of work to basically unpack these sort of societal norms or these kind of quite, I, su- I suppose, kind of um, heteronormative uh, rhetorics about sex and sexuality. So um, the book's basically, it's kind of also known as like a guide to polyamory and non-monogamy. It's a book, it's very American in style. And it's written by these like really, really lovely, uh, arguably quite twee in like its language is quite, it's sort of weird that they talk about kind of like, you know, like fucking, but it's like really twee, sort of sweet kind of um, kindly uh, language. And it's, um, it's nonfiction. Um, there's a lot of stories in there and they speak from a lot of personal experience. So as a couple, they've kind of, you know, adventured the non-monogamous scene and um, each chapter ends with like a kind of, um, not exactly a bit of homework, but a kind of like a an idea or like a kind of ex- ex- idea to explore with a partner or even on your own, you know, like it's... Um, it's more just like I suppose that it's not like a kind of okay now go to an orgy okay now try this okay now try watching porn it's not like that at all it's more like what about looking at something from a different point of view what about trying I mean one of the best one of the best things I get I got from the book was this idea of a timeout right so in all and and to me, for me, the beauty of this book is that there is knowledge in this book that would benefit everyone in any relationship, uh, you know, organization, like in any relationship constellation, even yeah. straight up yeah. kind of normal, you know, heterosexual partners. Um, the idea of the timeout is to just basically recognize when you are at loggerheads and just to call a kind of timeout for 
uh, kind of, you know, 15 minutes of let your nervous system return to normal, let your heart rate drop, let your breathing, you know, return to normal, which is like, you know, I'd love to see the kind of, you know, the, the straight couples guide to like <laughs> same thing, like, uh, you know, how to how to kind of just basically be happier yeah. um, in your relationships. But I suppose like I, I kind of, yeah, I started to kind of essentially identify as non-monogamous myself. And so a book like that sort of really helps to sort of, I don't know, give some like, context and to help understand that actually there aren't really rules the rules that we've inherited come from society yeah you know so you know we're kind of like there's a lot of like hangovers from judeo-christianity that i think as a community we're still working through but there's just so many amazing voices now i think helping to kind of um i don't know like bring new perspective or add more to that kind of conversation of like maybe there are other ways that Mm. humans organize themselves and actually maybe there always was and yeah so that's bad patterns and other Um, kind of I mean pretty much every story that's like over a certain age group deals in some way with sort of infidelities like maybe the problem is working out well what yeah maybe we need to shift our definitions to understand Mm. things and and to talk about them with our whoever we're with and yeah. understanding that it's not all one size fits all like it, it can't be yeah, like, yeah. That's not how. i mean i know i know friends of mine who've kind of gone down the road of going yeah i think i quite like this idea of non-monogamy and they sort of you know try it out but as a result of getting more in touch with themselves they often end up finding their life partner as a result like it's by it's through it's almost through this kind of route of like well actually what is it what do I really want what do I who I who am I really what like what are my boundaries and what am I okay with and and it you know I've kind of learned so much myself without going into detail (laughs) I've learned so much about things like kind of I don't know emotional marketplaces and um how people within relationships kind of trade uh like you know a lot of a lot of sort of like there's you know emotional labor is a part of a relationship and you're either conscious about this stuff or you're not and I tend to think that the more conscious you are the better placed you are to be more in a successful partnership or multiple relationships you know the more the more conscious and mindful you can be about what who what's going on who you are and what you want and what your then, are. yeah exactly and then i think you know books like um the ethical start give us a language mm. they give us a kind of a vehicle to talk about precisely yeah so it's basically providing us this kind of platform where it's like it's actually okay to talk in these terms it's okay to use words like slut yeah and you know to identify as a slut like yeah. uh just think yeah it's brilliant it's a great book when people were trying to subvert the whole walk of shame thing as well a couple of years ago it's um, shame yeah slut walks walks. Mm. yeah i thought that was really good because you just i don't know through that whole kind of early 20s it's like oh i guess someone doing the walk of shame but actually like owning that and making it into something else and changing that conversation Mm -hmm. is um yeah it was quite powerful Mm. i think if you look at it in that tense in that phrase the uh, walk of shame mm. the problem there is the shame yeah 
it's not, not the possible. word slur. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like yeah. if it's the the, sh the shame is always the toxicity. Mm. The shame is always the problem, not being the slut. You know, mm. yeah. Recommend that book. Good. Cool. <laughs> okay, Ellie. Yes. What do you reckon? There's uh, definitely links between our first couple of books. What do you uh, What do you think? There is. Okay. Um, gonna stick with nonfiction, whether that's a surprise or not. Mm -hmm. Everyone. Um. I reckon it is an autobiographical book about maybe your maybe it's your erotic memoirs and maybe it stemmed from um I keep thinking about the pain aspect as well and maybe there was something in your work life that sparked a change um cool okay okay so Stacy your um do you want to give us your third book? Yes. So the book, the third book in my list is called Sex and Punishment, 4,000 Years of Judging Desire by Eric Berkowitz. And I read that book uh, about a year and a half ago, a year ago, and I couldn't put it down. It was such a page turner. I raced through it. It's amazing. For me, I learned a lot um, about, well, without giving anything away, I learned a lot about, so it's very close to the Revolting Prostitutes book, um, but it's written by a historian and he doesn't have any experience as a sex worker or working in the sex industry, but he has written from a particularly sympathetic angle, looking at sex work laws and policies through the ages, going like all the way back to like Mesopotamian uh, documents. It turns out, right, that some of the earliest documents in like recorded history, yeah, like Mesopotamian uh, documents, yeah. Uh, um, they come from like early law courts, like early systems of basically jurisdiction. And what were the cases about? Cheating. Of wow. course they were. Yeah, there's a, there's like look, kind of like there's this fragmentary uh, evidence of um, a case where a woman is caught, um, you know, well, she allegedly is caught. She's certainly accused of, um, you know, being unfaithful. And it's uh, I think the the kind of the outcome of the the, the case is is um is lost. It's unclear what happened, but it kind of it goes through it like right like beginning with that up to kind of present day. I mean, he kind of talks about Oscar Wilde, but it it plots this kind of history. It plots this lineage of how throughout the ages humans have been bloody obsessed with each other's um predilections picadillos and um you know like uh transgressions from the social order you know from the kind of whatever various sort of um structure was in place at the time and it you'll be surprised it normally favored men and women very often got quite a bad deal for example the contagious diseases act 1864 is argued arguably one of the probably the first sex work law in the uk 
So it was introduced by the House of Parliament. It was an act that it was intended to deal with the rise of venereal disease. So you had the Crimean War, you had thousands of soldiers coming back from this Crimean War and coming back to uh, to to Garrick towns along the south coast, Southampton, Portsmouth. So you had all these um, harbours which were filling up with uh, ships with galleys and the galleons were then you know that so they became red light districts because the men are basically you know home temporarily and so the the areas flood with um, prostitutes and these galleon ships end up becoming like you know basically brothels and venereal disease is spreading like wildfire and so once so when the, the kind of the government sort of you know they get together and they think well, what are we going to do about this you know soldiers dying of vd we've got to do something about this so they acknowledge that there needs to be some kind of um, uh, public health uh, kind of program. But the idea of going onto the ships and testing the men was obviously out of the question. Yeah. 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 So, you know, they're, they're not going to stand like the, the officers were like, we're absolutely not going to stand for that. So so they end up focusing on the women. And so they the the law the 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 Contagious Diseases Act gave police instant powers to essentially arrest any woman suspected of being a prostitute. Right. Wow. So on the street, any woman on her own, dressed garishly, maybe a little bit loud, uh, any even anyone accused. So this was this was kind of you know like early. Um, kind of moralism sort of kicking off and those powers the police were able to arrest women they were also taken for um medical inspection whether they consented to it or not so it was often unwilling and they were taken to see doctors where um medical uh inspections were often very brutal uh particularly you know you can imagine if you're not consenting but they involved, uh, you know, inspections with kind of speculums and rusty old implements. And obviously, you know, yeah, you know, medicine in 1864 wasn't known for its sort of... Um, Cleanliness and hygiene. Yeah, right. But so a lot of women were no no doubt infected by um, these inspections. And then also they there were also powers for um, women to be taken to uh, convents and asylums. So the clink, the clink is one of the, the best, one of the most well-known examples of this where women were just basically locked up for three months and uh just basically traumatized um and so and then there was a register and so you that so this was kind of like this was how this was the uk's kind of early methods of trying to kind of look at this sort of you know social problem and what should we do oh well let's just create a generation of women who are absolutely traumatized and brutalized and no doubt a lot of them ended up losing their lives their sanity certainly their you know any kind of social status and a lot of these could just be women just dressed as you say garishly rather than the 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 sailors who were on a ship in one definite place so one of the and one of the outcomes of the early early, um the uh, the contagious diseases act it was that so some some of the earliest feminism actually came as a result of this act so where women were being accused of being prostitutes well you know the ones that were 
whatever, fine, lock them up. But the ones that weren't, you know, the kind of middle class women who were, you know, single, for example, or unmarried and wanted to be able to just walk in the street without harassment, for them to be then kind of accused or placed in this register, it kind of gave rise to a sense of like, you know, purpose and a movement for wanting to do... uh, yeah, for basically fighting back and to argue for women's rights, that women don't need to be accused and suspected of kind of, you know, um, vice all the time if they're out and about. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Such a fascinating book. Honestly, it's amazing. He talks about, like, the witch hunts and talks about, like, the new world. So when, um, you know, coloni- like early colonization the, what went on in the West Indies, horrendous, horrendous things that went on. But the book's written really well. It's such a good book. I mean, I can't recommend it enough. If anyone's interested in any of this stuff, it's just... You just don't put it down. It's brilliant. So, um, Ellie. Yes. You've had uh, three books. I think it is a collection of stories from women. I don't know how far back I want to go, sort of whether it's all modern day stories that have been collected by you or whether it looks at historical data um, but of women who have been uh, in sex work in some way, shape or form, uh, whether that be trafficking whether that be escorting like you know all different types of of sex work um and i think it looks at the kind of discrimination against women um but how these women are sort of like you know women are kick ass they really are i'm not going to focus on men right now though i could be wrong <laughs> so wrong maybe it is maybe i, no, I think that's <laughs> it's all from a man a man's perspective no I won't. I won't do that. I won't go back on myself. I think you're trying to like add some kind of plot twist that you don't um, expect. Surprise! And um, yeah, okay. Um, I think it's time for a, a reveal. So, uh, okay. Stacy, would you be able to give us uh, your full name, the name of your book, and tell us what it's about? So, my full name is Stacy Clare, and I have just finished the first draft of my book, The Ethical Stripper. Ooh. And it is a book about how the last 10 years of licensing laws in the strip club industry have completely failed the women who work in strip clubs. So it is a, it's a current, it's a critique of current licensing legislation in the UK. So I was a stripper for well I kind of still am I mean I I don't work in clubs anymore still still perform here and there but um yeah I basically um I worked as a stripper on and off for 13 years and I started to hmm, I wasn't ready for this bit Let's forget. Is it because the book is so full, so in your head that it's? Oh yeah, I haven't had I haven't had a chance. I haven't had a chance to get any kind of perspective yet, or kind of you know do the elevator pitch. Um, it's uh, it's about yeah. So basically, the book is about licensing legislation of the UK strip club industry, and how poor it is, okay. and how. Uh, the, the since two thousand and nine, there was a change in the law, the Policing and Crime Act attempted to kind of clean things up to sort of improve 
the conditions, the working conditions in strip clubs. And it hasn't, it's completely done the opposite. It's kind of, it's, if anything, it's made things worse, but it's quite complex. I've been involved for, so I've sort of basically been doing kind of activism and um, kind of narrative media, like media work, trying to basically kind of help change narratives about strip clubs and explain how you know shutting down a strip club is not actually a win for feminism you're kind of you know putting women out of work and you're pushing them into more precarious work and explaining how working conditions in strip clubs are already so precarious that what we need are better what we need are working rights we need our employment rights to be recognized and enshrined within licensing law and because they are currently there are not so we uh, we've been working with a trade union for the last couple of years, and we just this last week just had a really big win a legal case where a dancer has just established worker status in her club. She took her club to court to demand um, holiday pay, Great. and uh, you know for her workers' rights to be acknowledged and for her to you know because she's workers have the right to unionize. She was sacked for talking to dancers about the union. So she said, right, enough's enough. I'm going to take you to court. So she, because she has this thing, this worker status, it means that she has the legal right to unionize. So she she shouldn't have been sacked for talking to colleagues about it. So it's very exciting. And not a lot of people really know what's going on in my world. And part of the effort to, you know, part of the reason I want to write this book is to just basically try and, it's a it's along the lines of the kind of ethical slut idea of wanting to try and give people the language for understanding this trying to conversation yeah yeah and to have to have more I guess kind of a more um grounded understanding of because there's so much kind of hysterical rhetoric that flies around particularly you know when kind of like radical feminist uh campaigners who argue that you know strip clubs are a thing of the past and you know then there's no such place there's no place for a strip club in like modern you know day feminism and you're like well okay where are the jobs where are the where are all where's all the you know where where where's the freedom and the equality that women were promised until then we're gonna have women doing sex work right you know like continually you're going if you, if you continue to fail women at large in general if you don't provide the education and the support and the and the training and everything that women need to basically get out of poverty which by the way is like impacted by austerity like Mm. we english collective prostitutes are seeing record numbers of women getting in touch with them because they are turning to sex work because austerity is pushing them further into poverty and so you know the the the, this this is the real prop this is the real fight it's again that like idea of immigration laws create vulnerable people not the vulnerable it's not the exploitation itself you have to look at the context why do people get exploited because they're vulnerable in the first place if you if you create that vulnerability people will be exploited so so those these kinds of narratives about sex work are in like emerging you know, we're, we're, we're sort of finally, I think, starting to get some kind of say. I mean, I, I identify myself as a sex worker. I've worked in the sex industry for 13 years. And my book is just sort of taking up a bit of space within a much wider 
kind of movement. So it's like, a, you know, the, the global movement is decriminalization for all sex workers, workers' rights for all sex workers. But I'm focusing on strip clubs as that's like my kind of area of expertise. That's what I know. By the way, you were bang on with the autobiographical because I read it. part of my book, so it's my book's written in two voices. The first person narrative is my autobiographical voice. So it's my memoirs and my sort of okay. stories of this, you know, this is what it was like when I did, when I worked in strip clubs. Then the other voice, which is third person, more of the kind of backed up with the legislation, legislation yeah, and the, and the kind of references to... Um, what's going on and yeah we you know hopefully we might be getting somewhere we'll see cool that's really cool I think yeah giving giving a voice to something that uh, it's still it's definitely such a taboo thing still and Mm -hmm. people still view sex work in a real kind of way I think I don't know about younger generations and and how the conversation is happening there um but yeah there's definitely this cloud of I don't know, like shame and kind of uh, like yeah. disregard I think... from other people looking in. I think mm. a lot of the time. So interestingly, like even I can sense in this room, there's a tension whereby I think the shame has uh, lately kind of been replaced with quite a lot of fear and anxiety where I think people recognize that the shame is toxic and you know there's no place for shame anymore but there's still an awful lot of fear about getting it wrong about wanting to kind of make like as you said you know sort of trafficking oh but you know someone with trap they haven't chosen i'm like well this is this is this is the thing isn't it is that you don't have the tools to talk about things because people aren't having those conversations and aren't talking about them in a positive way or a constructive way precisely aren't talking about them full stop precisely and there's been such little work done to kind of unpack any of that to unpack well this is where you know the history of having these moralistic narratives kind of dominating our public discourse where everyone just kind of understands oh but yeah that's just wrong isn't it oh but yeah but that's just that's just abuse isn't it that's just oh yeah that just needs to stop what we actually need now is very kind of nuanced less hysterical and less fearful conversation I think people that there's there's a sense in which I think we once we kind of can move beyond the fear and the charge around this kind of oh sex workers oh god uh don't want to get it wrong you know thing of taking a breath again like you said in that other book like just Mm. yeah take a breath take Mm. a step back and and particularly in the post kind of me too period this me too era of well of course women's rights of course women's empowerment of course women shouldn't be exploited like there's just this kind of global acknowledgement that of course women shouldn't be pushed around and um yeah basically subjugated anymore and so there there's this kind of i think there's this like missing piece of the puzzle yeah. when it comes to the sex industry where it hasn't been fully kind of explored yet like well who's getting pushed around why are they get, getting pushed around what are the contexts? What are the, what's the what what is the more kind of complex reasons mm. for this these this kind of exploitation that happens? 
rather than just kind of obsessing about the exploitation in the first place, how can we better understand the wider? And 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 then we kind of once we kind of get our heads around that, it actually links up with so many of the struggles. You realise why anyone is made vulnerable, why addicts, why anyone homeless, why you know why drugs should be decriminalised, why you know, immigration laws should probably be relaxed. Actually, if we want to pe- if we want people to be exploited less, you know, like it's there's there's such a it's kind of very deeply intersectional. You know, the sex worker struggle is links up with so many other shared struggles that it's kind of, um, it's pretty powerful stuff. Um, but so, yeah, read more about it. Uh, yeah. And the, and the last 10 years, is that, did you say that's because the laws changed mm. in 2009? Yeah, well, I've written a chapter in the book where I talk about the history of licensing law yeah. of strip clubs in the UK. Because I couldn't find one, I couldn't. I was like, hey, "There's no one else has done this." So I've tried. I've had a go at plotting the chronology, beginning with um, the 19, in 1930, uh, the Lord Chamberlain relaxed laws around nudity to allow for the windmill. The there was a the the in, windmill international was basically the first strip club in the UK. There's been a film made about it called Mrs. Henderson Presents with Judy Dench in uh, it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, famous uh, strip club that stayed open uh, through the Blitz or something. And it's like, it's, I mean, I know about that strip club. I know. <laughs> I know how it ended up, who ended up running it. and oh. But... Um, who did end up running it then? Oh, you have to read the book. <laughs> so I've had to go at plotting the chronology of... Um, from the 30s up to present day yeah. and explaining how um yeah licensing of strip clubs was predominantly a kind of like a badly thought out sort of s- secondary like afterthought right. mm. like uh you know you sort of planned on the back of a fag packet practically like it's not it wasn't like it you know it was very kind of loose and um you, you yeah you just kind of had like uh stripping was always a very very informal uh kind of work so it's like the reserve of back rooms in pubs and you know working men's clubs and smokers evenings and i've got a mate who's a stripper she she's funny she's in scotland she's a stripper for 20 years 21 years and she was like yeah did a gig in a Masonic Lodge once. <laughs> like, fucking hell, what was that? They paid really well. <laughs> so there's basically um, a kind of, you know, it's like a, it's like a kind of folk history. Right. This is like folk culture that, you know, like where stripping comes from. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of, um, it's an informal and urban kind of um, history that, that, that the, the law has always kind of just like not really done very much about. But then in 2009, there was a kind of, well, it actually began in 2003, the Licensing Act relaxed a lot of rules around nighttime economy. So strip clubs basically boomed and lap dancing was a very kind of big phenomenon when it arrived. And for a sort of short period, it was, um, when there was a period in the sort of early noughties where for a lot of feminism, it kind of equated with like being a playboy bunny, sort of getting a boob job, getting a Brazilian wax, 
you know, stripping off. And now is this kind of idea that that was empowering in itself. So a lot of sort of sex work culture was kind of appropriated and emulated. But then, you know, kind of radical feminism caught up and they were like, well, we don't want our daughters in thongs. We don't want, why should all women be, why Why should our, and, you know, right enough, I don't disagree. Like, why should a woman's value equate to her hotness? Oh, that's simple. Yeah. So there was obviously a huge backlash to strip clubs. But again, it's not that simple of just saying, right, well, if we just erase, we just eradicate that, then the problem goes away. Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. You know, look at the reasons why anyone does sex work. It's because they've just got rent to pay. They, you know what I mean? They just have, they have to survive and the state is not providing that those safety nets. So um, the problem doesn't go away by just sort of criminalizing and trying to make things just stop. You know, like a lot of kind of anti-trafficking narratives are just this kind of make it stop, yeah. make it stop. But how? It just pushes things mm. further underground. How do you propose to stop it? Like, what's? Do, why does it happen? Look at the causes. Anyway. Do you think um, that... I'll bring up one thing that you said earlier and one thing that I did hear on... It was actually on Sarah Pascoe's Sex, Power, Money. Ah, such a good podcast. Such a good podcast. She's such yeah. a hero for, the, for that. So amazing. But she said she... that Actually, no, it wasn't her. I think she was talking with several sex workers mm-hmm. on... Mm-hmm. It was the very first episode yeah. I was Charlie listening Rose. to. I know Charlie. We worked... Oh, we, went really? to, we performed together in the Sex Workers Opera. Something that was said in that and something you said earlier, which is that it becomes awkward even within this room. Mm-hmm. Because something they said was that they think that men often won't talk about this like as in like if you're an mp if you're in parliament you bring this up because it becomes embarrassing and i certainly feel embarrassed about bringing things up and mm-hmm. i also feel worried about not wanting to speak to for other people mm-hmm. and probably a lot of that is that they should well obviously be reading books like your book and other books and making informed decisions mm-hmm. um yeah i wonder what your your thoughts on on that Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one because if you don't have people in Parliament with the kind of dedicated knowledge, politicians are busy, right? They've they've got a lot of things. They've got a lot of, there's a lot of narratives competing for attention. Um, There is approximately 70 to between 70 and 100,000 sex workers in the country. That's the kind of, those are the rough, relatively good estimates that we've got. So that's like, you know, a demographic there. That's like, you know, it's the size of a small city. And um, if we don't have someone in parliament who has the sort of like dedicated knowledge base, who ideally has the lived experience of being a sex worker as well, um, you know, we we rely on the exchange of information. We just kind of assume that it happens. But I mean, I've watched plenary sessions where councils get together to sort of try and talk about licensing of strip clubs, and it's it's shocking how m- nervous and how kind of how much it just sort of gets fudged. Yeah. That how how little language there is, how little confidence they have to talk about things like a lap dance. What actually is a lap dance? Yeah. Uh, to use the word stripper, I mean, everyone's kind of like entertainer, performer, and I'm like, no, but I'm a stripper. That's my that's my title. Like that's my job. And um, it is a it is a huge problem. I think you're right. I think Charlie was whoever said it in the in Sarah's podcast was right about men 
being afraid of, I mean, I guess there's been a lot of um, shaming of men who pay for sexual services in the first place. Like if you're a man in parliament and you speak about sex work, Mm -hmm. then there's a kind of like that underlying assumption that, oh, well, you know, you must have uh, seen your way around a few brothels then, son, you know, like, uh, the Profumo affair. Look at that. Like that. 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 In the the sixties yeah. was such, like such a kind of dom dominant set of narratives that you know Profumo was just this kind of appalling, appalling human for having ever kind of you know had sex. Well, anyway, but I don't know. Like there's 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 still I think a hangover from the Profumo affair. There's a hangover from that kind of tabloidy kind of hysterical kind of you know uh it only takes a few headlines for someone's career to just be completely destroyed and I think for uh, particularly men there's that fear of like if you go near it as a as a as a topic and it's not for you anyway it's for women it's that's that's for women to deal with but then you know we look at actually some of the most vociferant opponents to decrim for example are labor female labor mps so really yes absolutely sarah champion uh jessica simpson um they are dead dead against decriminalization of sex work and they are not going to budge you know they have absolutely no doubt in their minds that decriminalization results in uh giving traffickers and abusers and exploiters just this green light like if you decriminalize sex work then suddenly all the abusers can just give just go for it go for your lives do what you want lock them up just yeah. do you know what i mean like it's yeah it but in reality decriminalization where in new zealand since 2004 sex work has been fully decriminalized now in 2014 a sex worker took her brothel keeper to court for sexual harassment and won her case she sued him. It's incredible. You can't do that if your work is criminalised. You can't do that if your job is not recognised. So it's amazing to think that Labour women who come from a Labour rights movement haven't twigged that actually what decrim does is you decriminalise sex work, you empower the workers, and then they're able to take action against abuse. That such a It's such an obvious narrative that has been just clouded by all of the so so confused so confused so shrouded that you know we're here we are when we're writing our books and taking to the streets and taking our club bosses to court here we are trying to basically interject into that narrative and say actually that's not what you think it is Mm -hmm. listen to us we we know what we're talking about yeah on the ground experiencing it yeah 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 yeah. the 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 best one of the things one of the points in my book where i talk about um objectification i talk about how having your narratives stolen from you and controlled by someone else is like the kind of ultimate form of objectification where your own identity is used against you where your sex worker identity is used as ammunition for reasons why you shouldn't be heard and shouldn't be listened to. And that's a form of objectification that's happening to us by the women who want to stop 
objectification of women. Mm. Do you see <laughs> what I mean? Not, yeah, it's trying There's to understand. such a kind of horrendous double bind going on that it's like, we just need to break through this sort of like confusing, um, uh, unproductive uh, kind of like, like we're at loggerheads. Um, but I do think that we've kind of, you know, sex workers are getting pretty savvy now. Like we've yeah. kind of been using social media, building our networks, building our communities, building our movements and the cat's out of the bag now. I don't think it's going back in. Yeah. Yeah. I just realised there we've managed to go through the almost the entire podcast without using the word stigma. And I, re- I realised that actually it is an important one yeah. because when I use... Well, when I talked about the toxicity of shame earlier, I yeah. think that's the same, means the same thing. Like stigma is the toxicity. And there's a special word for stigma that is reserved for sex workers. Do either of you know what that is? No. So, well, am I going to know it when you say it? You might. You might have heard it on Sarah Pascoe's podcast. It's the word whorephobia. No way. Whorephobia. So whorephobia is the that's word amazing. that we use yeah this is part of our language yeah. and it's the it is the the special stigma that is reserved for people in the sex industry this kind of underlying sort of sneaky suspicion that you know anyone who's done any kind of sex work is just, you know just kind of other and mustn't be just don't go near it you know you just sort of stay well away from that um and then we've got another word which we use internally which is the hierarchy <laughs> and so you've got within the sex industry you've got lots of different jobs uh-huh. and when it comes to whorephobia and stigma what sometimes happens unfortunately is that a lot of different sex workers will organize themselves into a kind of hierarchy of power by which they distance themselves from other sex workers by saying, oh yeah, but I don't do that. So for example, a pro dom who never sometimes even has to touch a customer would say, oh, but I would never do full service sex work. I'd never, you know, do hands-on escorting, have full sex or, you know, hand jobs or anything. And then you've got a stripper who'll say, yeah, but I would never actually have sex for money. You know, I just do lap dancing and I would never like that. Like that. So you so you've got we've got this. We then also not only are handling kind of all the societal stuff, we then also got our own internalized sort of shame and stigma and fear and the ways that sex workers are, you know, hostile towards each other and the, the ways that you know, uh, some strippers are like all for sex workers. Sorry, they're all for workers' rights in their own clubs, but yeah. they're not interested in like full service workers. Right. Like they're not, any, they, they don't want anything to do with that. It's been a culture within strip clubs, particularly because of licensing law, because of this kind of idea that a strip club is a licensed premises is full fully licensed is fully legal but in order for that to be recognized as like a legitimate business that they have to sort of distance themselves from the sex industry and say but we're not sex workers you know they're, they're not strippers they're dancers 
They're dancers. Yeah. They're independent women and they earn good money and they're all pr- prim and proper. And because of that kind of, you know, they've got to sort of keep the, protect the licenses. There's mm-hmm. then this, there's been this kind of whorephobia within strip clubs for right. years, for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a stripper and I, I absolutely experienced whorephobia myself. Yeah. Like kind of just sort of that's, you know, any, any other kind of former sex work is disgraceful. And it's taken me years to unpack my own internalized torphobia. And that's what we see continually as well. Kind of new people kind of coming into the movement, moving into activism and kind of going, oh, yeah, right. Mm, Yeah. You know, didn't it's just such a kind of just so much work. (laughs) How does that fit in with this sort of idea of the like? I did the the film for um, uh, Stacey's book, and when we were doing that, I felt there was a sort of compartmentalizing a bit because you'd had the video was from Stacey Mm -hmm. and Claire, and Mm -hmm. at some point, I think you'd asked me to call you Claire as well, and then I was like, oh, maybe I've got her name wrong, and then I got an email from somebody at the publishers. Who called you Stacy? And I was like, "Oh, this is very confusing." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So is Claire a stage name? Performing name. Stacy. So Claire is my name. That's the name I grew up with. And then Stacy is my stripper name. Okay. And some at some point along the line, I realised that because I started to become more kind of public and have a sort of public profile, and I realised I had to sort of solve this problem of the two names, and I just was like, "Oh." Just put them together, Stacey Claire, easy. And also it meant that actually I'm able to kind of distance, I mean, I have a private life, I have a family name and that's like not for the like public knowledge. So it kind of worked quite well as a strategy for me to be able to sort of move through worlds yeah. or at least re- remain in control of the narratives that I would, I'm comfortable with being public. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, a lot of this, some, some of my very close friends know me as Stacey because that's the name I've used for so long. And then other friends know me as Claire and I'm kind of, it's fine. It's not, it's not a, I don't get kind of upset if people miss, get my name wrong in public because it's, you know, I've got a whole load of other names I can use anyway. Like, it's fine. But um, yeah, what was the compartmentalization? I guess I I I talk about this in the intro of the book. Like I I explain the reasons why I have these two names and I've written the book in these two voices is that actually for the purposes of understanding something quite complex, sometimes you need to be able to compartmentalize. Sometimes you actually need to because there's there's a sense in which you're trying to work through I guess, competing beliefs. Mm-hmm. So for example, for me, when I first started stripping and I wrote my dissertation about licensing legislation, this was like 10 years ago when I was a student. And I went and met some local radical feminists who were part of this organization called the Women's Support Pro- Group. Yeah, Women's Support Project, sorry. Yeah, Women's Support Project, Glasgow. And the woman leading this project was like, I did an interview and she was like, but where, I just can't see where the benefit is for, for women. You know, what? how are women benefiting from strip clubs? And we, you know, and I heard all this stuff about exploitation. I heard all this kind of, um, 
uh, I went and read all about like Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, the radical feminist movement who are, you know, um, that I guess are trying to be honest, who are trying to basically paint the sex work, sorry, the sex industry as a place of abuse, which it is. It, it actually is. I can't deny that. I can't deny that when I first started dancing, I noticed that we were being ripped off. I, I clocked it straight away. I could see that we were getting exploited financially and I could see that the club was basically propped up by us. We're doing the work. The club takes the money off us. I had these kind of, you know, but then I was also a student and don't come from money. And the money that I was earning as a stripper well, the benefit for me was the money. Yeah. You know, where's the benefit for women? Um, financial independence? Yeah. Not being On poor? such a basic level. Not, like, not yeah. being in poverty? Uh-huh. So there was these kind of, that's what I mean about, I had these competing narratives. And so I suppose to have two sort of, yeah, two personas, stripper, Stacy, sorry, Stacy the stripper, the slut, the, 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 the woman who's, does the work who understands the the business of it and then claire the academic who listens to the radfems and listens to the voices and listens to the um belief systems and kind of goes and then goes back to stacy and goes what does stacy know about this and then what claire's heard this and then so i guess that's how that's how that's happened somebody isn't just one thing Mm, or the other Mm -hmm. um maybe you will latch onto one and then say if you latch more onto Claire when you're reading it, and then say that oh, actually now that's helped me understand Stacy mm-hmm. and that industry. Um, I hope so. I hope it works. Amazing. Fantastic. Cool. I think yeah. Unless there's anything you want to add. No, I mean like yeah. I think I've learned quite a lot tonight in a really good way. Cool. I think we've gone sort of quiet because like apart from like you said the the awkwardness and we still need to to break the stigma Mm. of of talking about Mm. these things is that a lot of us have got to learn. I I believe it takes a generation to change a culture so you know and we may not even get the all the change we need within one generation but but we get you have to and we do have you know, a new generation of women, young women coming into sex work, working in strip clubs, who have, who, I, so they've got what I didn't have when I started dancing. I didn't have an iPhone. I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have a community that I could find. I didn't have a global kind of, you know, network. I didn't have access to the language that I do now. So that's what I mean about, I think it takes a generation, but so I want to see what this new generation of, you know, young 20 something year old women who are, you know, kind of entering the sex industry, but who are tooled up with this language now, who have a much kind of better understanding and a wider, like a kind of a comprehension of the context, the kind of legal and social context that they're operating in, uh, that, you know, we might just have decriminalisation by the time they're my age. So let's see, eh? Well, let's cool. hope. And cool. let's hope. And let's hope that we've all got, yeah, a keyed up with a lot more knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Well, cool. Stacey Clare. I was going to say, keep it coming, but... Um... <laughs> Yeah. Couldn't resist yeah. it. Couldn't exactly. resist it. Sex worker pun. There you are. 
<laughs> Brilliant. Well, Stacey Clare, thank you so much for coming along yeah, the show. You. You're so welcome. Brilliant. Thanks for having me. So, Ellie, it has been a, a full two years since we recorded that. Um, how, how does it feel listening, listening back to that? Just super interesting. And I don't know whether you agree, but my own kind of um, bias or yeah. ways of thinking were a certain way until I met her. I think that's an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. So I, I think it goes back to the same thing. Don't stop listening to us and go out and buy um, a copy of Stacey Clare's The Ethical Stripper. Um, it is out now. And yeah, it is fantastic. There's so much you can learn from Stacey. You've been listening to Poking Books with Ellie Harris and Mark Bowsher. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Both of them are just at Poking Books. No hashtags, no underscores, just simply at Poking Books. You can also listen to the podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash Poking Books. Or wherever you get your podcasts from. And remember, if you do enjoy the podcast, please subscribe because it means more people will find us and listen to us. You've been listening to a Rabbit Island podcast and do tune in for the next episode very soon. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye.